You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. We'll now read the scripture for today. It's a fairly lengthy passage from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, verse 10. So due to time constraints, I won't be reading all the verses. I'll read out the verses along the way, and you can follow along with your devices or on the screen. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The son of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Verse 9. And they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh. Hannah rose. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Verse 13. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Verse 24. And when Hannah had weaned him, she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. They brought the child to Eli, and she said, My Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Chapter 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. 
Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with the princess and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. These are the true words of the living God. Thank you. Thank you, Dika. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. My name is Hekyong, one of the pastors of uh, Redemption Hill Church. Just really glad to be uh, with you again this afternoon, worshipping. Usually, I'm in the third congregation, so it's always a privilege to be bringing God's Word to you. Um, and if you're new, I just want to welcome you and also just to orientate you a little bit. We just started on our sermon series uh, in 1 Samuel, and this is the second week. Uh, first week that we are diving into the text, but second week of the sermon series. So, uh, before we begin, should we ask the Lord for help? Father God, this morning we are singing that Jesus, you are strong and kind. We are singing that if we are lost, if we are fearful, if we are weak, we can come to you. And so this morning we do come to you with empty hands but yet hence they are open, ready to receive from you because you are all-sufficient God. Help us this morning if some of us are meeting our needs in our own way, help us to see that Jesus, you are strong. For those of us who don't have an issue believing that you are strong, but struggle to believe that you are kind, then make yourself all-sufficient to us in your kindness and in your goodness this afternoon. We pray that you ask we ask that you help us in the next moment or so. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Life around us appears to uh, celebrate and normalize self-sufficiency. Right, we all plan to uh, attain to some form of financial independence, which is why it's a concept of uh, financial planners. Right? As a small country, often we ask ourselves, how can we be less reliant on other countries for resources? The modern family unit in uh, Singapore is a nuclear unit that's quite easily uh, self-isolating and, you know, gone are the days of the kampong spirit where people are helping out one another, right? It's, it's, uh, you pretty much hardly know your neighbours there, don't ask them for help. And um, just to be sure, like yesterday I wanted to print my sermon notes and I was really struggling to ask my neighbours for help. <laughs> so I needed this sermon for myself. Now, because self-sufficiency is so normalized, we fail to realize how it has subtly shaped the way that we relate to God. We have learned to meet so many needs without looking to God. <laughs> you know, just take an take, take example, right? Um, prayer. How many of us actually give thanks before a meal? Don't be shy. No, come on. This, this is concerning, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'll be the first to admit and confess, right? Uh, giving thanks during meals is sometimes done in a very perfunctory manner, right? A bit of a don't say, don't have obligatory. Um, and I think the reason is because like, our lips confess that 
God is the one who provides our daily bread. But deep within us, functionally, we kind of really believe that we are the ones who either bought the meal or made the meal. Our self-sufficiency extends beyond just meeting our needs without God. We try to meet our desires without God as well. Now, I have a host of like, health issues and uh, there was a season of time when I was like, panic buying, panic buying insurances. And I remember my, my wife distinctly said to me, you're buying insurance like an atheist. <laughs> it's classic, eh? It's such a memorable line, right? It's like, yeah, you're buying insurance as if God doesn't exist. You don't need God anymore at the rate that you're buying insurance. <laughs> or consider our self-talk. Just how many times last week has there been this voice in the background that questions us again and again, that says to us, am I enough? Am I enough as a mother? Am I enough as a student? Am I enough in my workplace? Now, asking am I enough is trying to find our sufficiency in what we do rather than in God and who He says He is for us. Trying to meet our own desires for worth and value and significance without God is exactly the problem of self-sufficiency. And thankfully, this afternoon, God's Word has something to say to us, right? 1 Samuel 1 warns us against self-sufficiency and encourages us to look to God. And so the sermon this afternoon will be two points, right? The first is turn away from your self-sufficiency and then the second is turn to God for sufficiency. Turn away and turn to God. Again, I want to encourage us to just have our Bibles open so that you can actually follow along with me. Turn away from self-sufficiency. So picture this scene, right? The time of the year has come. Ways of Israelites are thronging to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. The festivity in the air is palpable, right? People are either offering sacrifices to the Lord or they are eating and drinking in celebration. And then the camera pans and zooms in on this woman who is at the doorway. She is not eating. Well, in fact, she's sobbing. And we are told that her name is Hannah. She's obviously an emotional wreck. And the author doesn't want us to miss this. Come with me to verse 10. She was deeply distressed. She wept bitterly. Better translated as she was wailing, quite literally. Verse 15, she's troubled in spirit. Verse 16, she's plagued with great anxiety and vexation. What exactly is troubling Hannah? And we are told in verse 2, very plainly, Hannah had no children. Hannah had no children. Now, before we quickly identify with her and, yeah, yeah, I understand how she feels. No, no, no. Barrenness in the ancient world is far more complex than not having a complete family or emotional fulfillment. Now, why do I say that? Because having children in ancient days was a matter of social and economic security, right? The more children you have, the larger the labor force, the better the production, the greater the income. And let's not forget that infant mortality rates were high. But not only was having children a matter of social security, right? It was also a matter of military security, the smaller the family, the smaller the tribe, means that you're a lot more vulnerable to attacks from your enemies. So you can see why in those days, there's enormous cultural and social pressure put on women to have children because it's a matter of life and death. 
But Hannah wasn't just facing the external pressure from around her, the cultural pressures around her. She was also feeling another kind of pressure. But this time, this external pressure comes from someone within the family. Enters Penina, whose name by the name, by, by the way, means fruitful. She's fruitful, right? She knows everything about rubbing it in, right? So imagine it's like she, this conversation between Hannah and Penina. How's your day, Hannah? You know, I've been like, having a really rough day. It's like, yeah, you don't understand. It's like while Elkanah was doing his temple duties, I was like really busy with the children. Yeah. I was like trying to feed the two-year-old and then like having my eyes locked on the eight-month-old who is like crawling in the corner. And then in between all these things, I'm trying to settle the emotional meltdown on my older kids. Oh, by the way, I forgot to ask you, how was your day, Hannah? This is no friendly banter. Year in, year out, she taunts Hannah. She provokes her grievously. She's relentless in her emotional and verbal abuse. And year in, year out, Hannah will be repeatedly crushed, emotionally crushed, until 1 verse 9, when the verse says that Hannah rose. Now, I know rising up doesn't sound very significant to us, right? But in the Old Testament, this word has this sense of acting, no longer remaining passive, but, you know, acting and, and making a decision. What did Hannah do exactly? She prayed. She prayed. She brought her tears before God and she processed them before Him. And interestingly, we are told in 1 verse 18 that after she prayed, something happened. Her face was no longer sad. What exactly changed? Now, in order for us to understand that, we have to look at the prayer more closely. Come with me to 1 verse 11. And she vowed a vow and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now, so she's asking God for a son so that she can return him to God. Now, now, just for the context here, this, this is referring to a Nazarite vow, right? So basically what she's doing is to commit her son to priestly duties in the temple. Uh, in, in modern parlance or lingo, this is like Hannah committing her son to a full-time ministry, okay? But if you're skeptical like me, I don't know about you, right? But you probably wonder, like, oh, wait a minute, like, Hannah, are you like bargaining with God, right? It's like, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, you know? <laughs> If you give to me my desires, then you know I'm going to do this for you. Is Hannah trying to manipulate God into giving into her desires? No, but friends, think about this. The earlier mention of the significance of the children for social security, for all kinds of other security, means that asking God for a son and then returning him for priestly duty absolutely makes no sense. It's the worst bargain you can think of. <laughs> so I don't think Hannah was like trading with God, right? In fact, in 1 verse 23 to 24 in your Bibles, we are told that you know, after Hannah weaned the child, she gave him up to the Lord. Which means that the child barely stayed with Hannah for a couple of years. So much for emotional support or social support or security. I don't think that was why Hannah was doing this. She wasn't bargaining with the Lord. So what was she doing then? If we look more closely at the prayer, it demonstrates how Hannah has begun to locate her story within God's larger storyline. Now come with me again to a prayer, right? And she made a vow and she said, Oh Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. Now I know these words wash over us very quickly, but these are the words that actually come from the book of Exodus. Now let's take a look. 
And God, this is Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, and God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw, same word, the people of Israel. And in chapter 3, verse 7, then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their cry. Okay, see what Hannah is doing there, she's using the same words as the words that's being used in the book of Exodus when God actually remembered. And, and you know, when it comes to remembering for God, it's not just like, oh, by the way, I forgot, and thanks for reminding me, right? As far as God is concerned, remembering in the Bible always means God acts. God acts, right? In the case of Exodus, God acts by sending Moses to deliver his people from Egypt. But over here, God is saying, will you act? Hannah says, I want to serve God's purpose, which is why many times she says, I am a servant. She's locating her story in the larger storyline. She wants to serve God's purposes. So friends, she was seeing very clearly how her barrenness wasn't just a personal tragedy, but it's excluding her from God's larger plans. Now, what I mean? Now, remember after the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, remember how God in Genesis chapter 3, He promised, right? He promised that there's someone who will come, the woman's offspring will come and crush the serpent's head. And He's going to like right all wrongs, right? Or do you remember in Genesis chapter 12 when God shows up and He promises Abraham offspring and He says that in this offspring, the blessing will go out to the nations, God is going to make all wrongs right again and He's going to reverse the effects of the fall, which means to say that God's people were looking for a saviour from within Israel. So much so that every single time a baby is born, they're asking, is this the one? Now, if that's the case, it is more than just a personal tragedy. Hannah sees herself excluded from God's larger redemption story, from His purposes. And she wants to. She wants to locate a story within his story. She wants to serve his purposes. And that's why her face is no longer set after she prays. Her priorities are reordered. She wants to, now that she has seen clearly, she wants to participate in the purposes of God. Now, no doubt, year after year, Hannah religiously attended the ceremonies at the tabernacle, but it was in this prayer that something changed. Right, she sees God no longer as a means, but as an end. She wants to serve His purposes. And friends, this explains why that vow, that so-called quote-unquote bargain was like so illogical, right? It's like, what's, what's the use of giving back the sun right, when you just receive the sun, right? Or that's, this, this explains why she's no longer sad even before she had the sun. She was sad, she prayed, and then she found inner peace. It wasn't like she was sad, she prayed, she was pregnant, then she found inner peace, right? So Hannah wants to locate her story in God's. She wants to serve. She wants to participate in God's larger purposes. And friends, interestingly, there are two other characters in this story which is, who act as a foil to Hannah, right? There's Penina. There's a Penina who locates her sufficiency in children. Now, let's not forget that Penina herself is a sufferer. Now, how do we know that? Now, remember the man to whom we're introduced at the beginning of chapter 1, right? Whose name is Elkanah. Elkanah has two wives, right? Panana is the second wife. And remember what he does. Like, remember the, the uneven and unequal treatment with regards to his wife. He gives the double portion to Hannah, which kind of suggests, you read in between the lines, and Panana is always being neglected. And what she do? She looks to her children for sufficiency, which is why she's always bragging and boasting about them, which is why she's always taunting Hannah over them. 
But make no mistake, you know, pre-prayer Hannah is a little bit like Penina as well because she, like Penina, is also looking to children for sufficiency. But there's a second character, Elkanah. Remember, Elkanah is like, Hannah, don't worry. Like, I know you don't have children, but listen, am I not more to you than ten sons? Elkanah wants to offer spousal love as Hannah's sufficiency. There are two options here, right? Hannah could locate a sufficiency in children or in his love. But as we've seen, Hannah did neither. She went to God. She located her story in God's story. Now, friends, what is your sufficiency? Where do you find your sufficiency? Maybe for some of you, it's children. Having children is... You know, children are the light of your life and not having children is like ultimate darkness. Maybe for some of us, it's work, right? It's like when, you're having, when you have a rising career, it gives you hope. But when you lose a job, you lose a promotion, it absolutely paralyzes you. Maybe for some of us, it's like a body image, right? When you're looking good, we're looking all put together physically. We feel very proud of ourselves. We have the sense of hope and confidence, but when our... I don't know, muscles turn to flat, we get deflated. No pun. Now what happens next is this, then God in His kindness then drives us to our knees. Right? And He drives us to our knees in hope that we will now see for ourselves the futility of trying to find our sufficiency in anything else that's outside of God. Now where do we get it from in the text? Now do you remember in 1 verse 5 and 6, the text tells us that the Lord closed Hannah's womb. I don't know about you, but I found it really offensive. It's a very great thing. What? I thought Penina was the problem. No, no, no. Penina is the secondary issue. God is the primary agent who was responsible for closing Hannah's womb. And then she gets provoked. And then she feels helpless. And then finally she goes to pray. And that's when she realizes where her sufficiency lies. Sometimes God corners us so that we'll begin to see for ourselves where our sufficiency lie. Well, but you know what? My guess, because I speak as a sinner to sinners, my guess is in spite of being cornered and in your helplessness, you still continue to persist in your self-sufficiency, like me. Think about the number of times that we feel so helpless and you know, we whine in our beds and we refuse to cry out to God, right? Friends, think about the ways in which we persist in our self-sufficiency. When something that we hold as our sufficiency is slipping away from our fingers, we cling on to it with our dear lives. We work ourselves to the bone in order to cover all bases, right? So if you're, if you're a mother and you feel very helpless, you know, it's one of those things where I've spoken to mothers and mothers are like, yeah, I feel very helpless and so I read parenting books. And after I read parenting books, then I realize that the gap between what I should do and what I'm currently doing is so wide, then I feel more helpless. <laughs> Or work, right? It's like if you locate your sufficiency in work, what happens is that when you see your career slipping away or your promotion slipping away, what you end up doing is like you pour yourself out. You lose sleep over it. You get highly strong and anxious. You do extra courses. And then you start to try to please everybody in your workplace and do things that you typically wouldn't do. <laughs> or if you locate your sufficiency in a romantic relationship, you start to do things you wouldn't dream of doing as well, right? It's like in your mind, you're like, oh, no, I know, you know, Marriage, purity, etc., etc. No, no, no. But my relationship is slipping away. I think I might just like, you know, cross some physical boundaries just to hold on to the relationship for my dear life. 
Now, maybe some of us don't persist in our self-sufficiency this way. Maybe we try to find alternative sources of self-sufficiency, right? So, for example, you know, we look to our marriages for self-sufficiency. I'm making this up, right? It's like, okay, and marriage doesn't really work out. And you know what we say? At least I have my children. That's very Chinese, by the way. At least I have my children. And then the children grow up, they rebel, they disrespect you. Oh, gosh. At least I have my career. At least at my job, people respect me. I get intellectual respectability. People look up to me. And then guess what? Maybe the career doesn't really work out. At least I have church ministry. People look up to me, my CG, you know, I lead CG well, blah, 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 and it's like, I'm fruitful. And then maybe CG doesn't go so well, CG leading doesn't go so well, or I don't know, serving in church doesn't go so well. At least, at least I have my hobby. I'm pretty good at basketball, you know, I mean, or whatever. And if that doesn't go too well too, at least that person is worse off than me. Now friends, look at the way we talk about at least I have, right? What is that kind of narrative? I'm looking for alternative sources for self-sufficiency. You know how we do it? We vacillate between the Peninas and the Elkanas. But friends, the problem of trying to be self-sufficient or trying to locate your sufficiency in the things of this world is that when you lose or you lack these things, they will crush you. And we know that, right? Now think about this. Hannah wasn't crushed because of Panina. She was crushed because there was something that she already wanted for which Panina was taunting her. If I were to give you an analogy, it's a little bit like an analogy of a bridge, right? It's like, you know, like a, a three-tonner truck comes along and then the bridge collapses and you wonder why. Oh, well, because the truck is too heavy. No. There probably was a hairline crack somewhere in the structural integrity of the bridge. My friends, it's the same thing. Now, before we blame the Peninas of this world, before we blame the three Tana trucks, oh, I lost my job, I lost my health, I don't have children. Now, before we blame that, we have to realize first and foremost, the problem is the hairline crack. The problem is that we have already tried to look for sufficiency in something else, and all you, have, all you need is that helplessness, that furnace. All you need is that three-ton truck, and the bridge collapses. Here we crumble. If you grow up in an Asian family, one of the things that you hear, one of the things I always hear, right, for, from, from the seniors that I hang out with is like, you know, like, I'm so old and I'm so useless that I'm of no value to mankind. Of course, they don't say it like that, but I'm trying to translate this in English in real time, right? It's like, I, I cannot contribute to society, whatever it is, right? But friends, think about this. Like, this kind of talk, self-talk exists when helplessness comes and bankrupts us of all our self-sufficiencies, when our final sufficiency is being stripped away, understandably, this is how we're going to be talking. I have no hope. I'm in despair. What's the point of living? <coughs> Friends, we were never made to be self-sufficient. But especially when you're in a season when the Lord closes the wombs, figuratively or literally speaking, will you start to turn away from your self-sufficiency? 
Because that is God's gracious opportunity. God corners us so that we may run to Him for help. We may run to Him and to see very, very clearly where we have wrongly and erroneously put our trust and sufficiency in. So friends, turn away from your self-sufficiency, but don't just do that. Turn away as well. Turn to God as well for your sufficiency. Because He's all that you need. Hannah experiences God's help and she breaks into a song. 1 Samuel 2 verses 1 through 10 is famously known as Hannah's song or Hannah's prayer. You know, she, in this song, she moves from her own personal story to God's larger redemptive purposes. Right? What do I mean? Come with me to the next slide. Just take a look at this, right? She starts with a personal pronoun. She says, my heart, my mouth, I rejoice. By verse 3, she says, let not arrogance come from your mouth. Yours in the plural. Or, or she starts with my horn in 2 verse 1 and by the end of the song, she says the horn of the anointed. She sees the story of God's deliverance as a pattern of God's larger mode of operation. That's the way God works. That's the way God acts redemptively. So how exactly does God act? And the answer is God exalts the proud, exalts, exalts the humble, yeah, and humbles the proud. I always get this wrong. <laughs> This is a God who humbles and exalts. Now come with me to verse 4. The bowls of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Now remember last week, like Simon was preaching that 1 Samuel 2, guys, I'm going to give you a tip, right? Like just, just put a bookmark in like 1 Samuel 2, Hannah's song, because this is going to be the contents page of the rest of 1 Samuel, okay? Super important here, right? Now the bowls of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Now we see immediately in the examples in 1 Samuel itself, right? Who, who are the mighty? Think of King Saul. Think of Goliath. The mighty are ultimately, you know, think of their downfall. But think, however, of the humble. Think of David, the shepherd boy, the one whom his family cannot even remember that he existed, right? Or what about verse 5? Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Just next week, as you're going to be looking at Eli's sons, you know, like the corrupt priesthood, you're going to see how the sons help themselves to temple sacrifices in a very unlawful manner. And in due time, God is going to judge them, right? Those who are full will become hungry. But even in our story today, in Hannah's story, remember how she started in chapter 1. She couldn't eat. But what's the first thing that she did after she prayed? She ate, Right? What about verse 5? The baron has born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn, right? Uh, Penina, right, whose name is fruitful, you remember, is never to be mentioned again in the rest of 1 Samuel. But Hannah, God doesn't just give her um, a child, right, who's, who's Samuel, but by the end of chapter 2, she has five other children. So you see this reversal going on. You see that God is a God who humbles and exhorts. No, but to be sure, God does not discriminate against the hefts for the have-nots, right? It's not like if you're successful, then you're automatically cursed. If you're impoverished, then you're automatically blessed. I don't think this is what the song is about. How do we know that? Well, look at 2 verse 3. Talk no more so ever proudly and let not arrogance come from your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge and by Him actions are weighed. Now, if you see this talk not, uh, no more so very proudly, you think of Penina, remember? She was the one who was like taunting and provoking the person who talks proudly is the one, the person who is proud is the one who is going to be humbled. And Penina, who is a picture of pride and self-sufficiency, is ultimately humbled, right? Now, another thing which is very interesting here is talk no more so very proudly is literally translated, do not multiply your speech high, high. 
And now it sounds very, very strange. Uh, I, actually, Singaporeans wouldn't have a problem with this, right? <laughs> That's how we talk, right? The word high is the same word that describes the height of King Saul and then Goliath. Remember Saul, as we are going to read later, he, he's like head and shoulders above everybody else. Remember Goliath, right? The author of uh, 1 Samuel actually describes how he's like, I can't remember, six cubits and one span or something like that, which I went to check it out. But apparently the calculation shows that he's three meters tall or something like that, right? But whenever the author of 1 Samuel describes like the physical appearance, it's not a good sign. I'm just telling you, I'm giving you a tip here, right? Because chances are this physical appearance is a symbol of that person's self-sufficiency, which therefore will also be the cause of that person's downfall. So can you see God exhorts and God humbles, right? But Hannah is different. Hannah displays true humility. She doesn't just run to God in a helplessness. Even in 2 verse 1, Hannah says what? She says, I exult in the Lord. I delight in Him. God is Hannah's sufficiency. So God humbles the self-sufficient, but He exalts the humble. Now friends, the word exalt appears many times in Hannah's song, right? Look at this. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Verse 7, the Lord brings low and he exalts, right? Verse 8, he, he lives, he exalts the needy from the ash heap. Verse 10, the Lord will exalt the horn of his anointed. So clearly there's this word that's on refrain, but the question is what exactly does exalt look like? Now come in once more to the following verses. Look at verse 5. Those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. I think exalt means that God is going to meet the needs of his people. And in the first case, in verse 5, he's going, to meet the, he's going to meet the needs of sustenance. He's saying that he's going to provide for his people. They will not go hungry. Look at verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off. Not only is God going to meet the need of sustenance, he's going to meet the need for security. You don't have to take things in your own hands or get into rivalry or office politics. God promises to protect his people. He promises security. Now, exhort also means, verse 8, he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. Exhort also means that God meets our desire for dignity. Some of us feel this sense of shame and unacceptability. We feel this sense of worthlessness. Growing up, we feel that no one loves us. You know, but, but verse 8 here, God meets not just our needs, he meets our desires even for dignity. But the greatest need that God meets is in verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life and he brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Now friends, Sheol in the Old Testament is the land of the dead. So to be raised up from Sheol hints at resurrection. Now God meets our greatest need, which is the need for life. Life in every single sense, spiritual life, bodily life. Now friends, Hannah's story is not primarily about God's promise to give children. Hannah's story is primarily about how God brings life out of the dead. Hannah's story of barrenness stands in a long line of many other barren stories. Think of Sarah, right? Abraham's wife. Think of Rebecca, Isaac's wife. Think of Rachel, Jacob's wife. Think of um, Samson's mother. Think of uh, Elizabeth in the New Testament. Now, all, every single one of these impossible births, every single one of these miraculous births are pointing us towards the ultimate miraculous birth. You know, guess what it is? Our new birth. We are all dead in our sins and trespasses, but God made us alive together with Christ. 
when we were all helpless and not even knowing that we are helpless. I'm not talking about circumstantial helplessness here. I'm talking about existential helplessness here. When we are all helplessly and by default rejecting God and running away from Him, He gave us new life. Every single one of these barrenness stories ultimately point to our new birth. So God exhorts the humble. God exhorts the humble by meeting our needs and our desires. Except there's one problem. And the problem is this. I don't know whether you realize the problem. We're not humble. (laughs) We're persistently self-sufficient. We want to meet our own needs without God. We insist on locating our sufficiencies in the things of this world. But there is one who is truly humble. And Hannah's song in 2 verse 10 alludes to it. She talks about this king. She talks about this anointed one. And we know who he is. He's Jesus. He's King Jesus, right? He's the only one who is utterly dependent on God. He's the only one who locates his sufficiency in God and God alone. He's the one who says, my food is to do the will of God who sent me. But in spite of his humility, he experienced God's humbling. Now friends, on the cross, Jesus had no sustenance. He thirsted. On the cross, Jesus had no security. He was given over to his enemies. On the cross, Jesus lost all dignity. He was stripped naked and mocked and shamed and humiliated. But that's not the final word. We know. We know the final word is is that this king was exalted when God raised him from the dead on the third day so that all of us, any one of us in this room who will turn away from our self-sufficiency and look to God and come under the rule of this king, we too may be exalted because as the king goes, so goes his people. So because of Jesus who is exalted and us in him, God can meet our needs and our desires. We don't have to meet our own needs and desires apart from Him. Now, except the reality is this. Living an exalted life sometimes hardly feels like exaltation. Let's just be honest here, right? We know that from our experience. We know that God doesn't always meet our needs or our desires. At least not according to our expectations. He does it according to his timing, according to his own expectations, but clearly not according to ours. We know that from Scripture as well. Right? Remember, remember how David was, in, in, in one way he was exalted. Remember David was anointed by 1 Samuel 16. David was anointed, he became king. But in another sense, David was like running for his life from his enemies. He had no safety. He certainly didn't cease to hunger because, remember, he was so desperately hungry, 1 Samuel 20 or something like that, he was so desperately hungry, he had to beg for the show bread in the temple, which was only legal for the priest to eat. Now, what about Jonathan as well? Now, think about Jonathan, right? Jonathan, like, basically, he pledged his allegiance to, to King David because he recognized that David is God's king. But look at what happened to him. He said, at the cost of his own throne as the crown prince, he fell out with his father, King Saul, and ultimately, he will lose his life. Is that exaltation? <laughs> now, friends, even in 1 Samuel, you see this pattern of immediate exaltation and a not yet exaltation. And so are we. We are living in between these two exaltations, uh, already and not yet. Except that living in between these two exaltations means that 
sometimes and very often our needs are not met. Very often we feel that we are helpless. But remember David and Jonathan again. One thing, one thing that always struck me as I read through the 1 Samuel is that David and Jonathan never bail out of God. He never walked away from God. Now why is that so? Somehow they placed their trust in God. Somehow they located their own personal story within God's larger story. And friends, I, I want to say this to you. I want to say this that if God's sufficiency merely stops at Him meeting your needs, you're going to get into so much trouble. You know what? You're going to want the gifts without the giver. You're going to be using God. And you and I are going to be mercenary. <laughs> and, the re- and, the, and, and as long as God stops meeting our needs, we're going to stop following Him. We will just leave the faith completely. Now, friends, God cannot just be all sufficient insofar that He's all that we need. He needs to be all sufficient insofar that He's all that we want as well. But we say, oh yeah, you know what? Like, I got no problem with this, right? Like, God is all that I want. I sing this all the time and I worship God. This is fine. This is easy for me, right? It's like, I always learn to put God first. And I'm saying, how do you know that you are putting God first? How can you know that you're putting God first? The only time you will know that you're putting God first is when the fire comes. It's when the helplessness comes. It's when God closes the womb. And then suddenly, your mixed allegiances are being surfaced. Suddenly, you find yourself at a crossroad where you have to decide either I will say, at least I have such and such, or go down the other road that says, Jesus alone is enough. And if I were to hazard a guess, I suspect many of us have no issue with God is my sufficiency insofar that He is all that I need. But I suspect we struggle with He's all that we want. So how can we get from God is sufficient in a way that He's not just all that I need, but He's all that I want? My friends, the secret is in Hannah's song. Again, not, Hannah, not chapter 2, but remember Hannah's prayer in chapter 1. Now remember how she prayed. O Lord of hosts, if you look on my affliction and remember me. Now friends, we can remind ourselves of the same truths. We can say, God, you looked on my affliction and remembered me. Except the difference is that God does not act by sending Moses to Egypt to deliver his people. God acted by coming down in the person of Jesus and ascended a Roman cross. Now friends, when you and I were rejecting him, when you and I were using him, he died for us on the cross. And he says, I love you, I delight in you. Friends, it's only when this thing is literally etched and burned into our hearts can we then say that, God, you are sufficient, not just that you're all that I need, but you're all that I want. It's only when this truth really grip us, our hearts, our imaginations, every part of us, then we can say that your spousal love, oh Jesus, is worth so much more than the ten sons, the sons of career, of children, of health. I want to say a brief word to those who are struggling with infertility. I can imagine reading 1 Samuel 1 can be very triggering. Speak to some of us and know that those of us who struggle with infertility, you know, it's, it's difficult when the social media feeds come on and then you see someone else is like getting pregnant again and then you feel this sense of being left behind and you're like, you know what, I, I, I know I should be celebrating with that person but I just can't. I really struggle to celebrate now I feel guilty. 
whenever I read a feed like that, it's like, yeah, I feel like completely hollowed out. In fact, I don't just feel hollowed out. I almost wonder whether God has forgotten me. God is so unjust. I mean, that person is going to church. And me, I'm, I'm faithfully serving you all the time, God. And look at, look, at, look at this. What is happening here? Now, if that's you, I want to say, right? You know, I know God has not forgotten you. How do I know that? Because He looks upon your affliction and He remembers you. How do I know that? Because He had looked upon your affliction and He had remembered you. He didn't promise children. But friends, he gave up his only son. And friends, I want to close with prayer as well, just an application on prayer. You know, seeing God as our sufficiency changes the way we pray. If God is only sufficient in the sense that he's all I need because he meets my needs, then my prayer only takes a certain form. I only go to God and petition Him all the time. He's not personal. My prayer life is only petition and petition and petition. I'm only asking all the time. There's no praise, there's no thanksgiving, there's no adoration, nothing. And the moment God stops answering my needs, I stop praying. But if God is our all-sufficiency, it changes the way we pray. We start, to, we start to want to locate our story in His story. We start to want to serve His purposes. And of course, we can and we must pray, right? We must bring our needs before God. We can say, God, I want to be healed. God, I, I would love children. God, I would love to have a job. I just got retrenched. We can do all these things. But friends, when God does not answer those prayer requests, our comfort comes in the form that in the form of His all-sufficient love. We can rest in His goodness. It's hard. Some years ago, my wife and I, we were in an uh, um, ultrasound room and we were, we were hoping to uh, you know, see our third baby in the, in the monitor. And then, you know, can you imagine, like the moment of truth came and then those words came out from the doctor's lips. It's like, yeah, I think there's no heartbeat. I remember literally feeling hollowed out. But the doctor didn't want to be a bearer of bad news, right? He's like, hey, yeah, I mean, it's very early days. Don't worry about this. And besides, maybe the machine is not good, right? There's a high res machine. Schedule, schedule another appointment and things are going to be fine, right? And I remember during that window of waiting, Every single day, my wife and I, we were like praying, we were crying, we were asking God, would you not spare? Would you not let the baby live? But one thing that was a very sweet moment I will distinctly remember is God showed up when we were praying and He said, Ikyong, am I your only comfort in life and death? Because if I'm not, then I shall never be. That's before knowing whether the baby will survive. And sadly, the baby didn't. But that is a very sweet moment until today, I still remember. And friends, today I ask you all the same question. Is Jesus your only comfort in life and death? Because if he isn't, then he shall never be. My friends, let's turn away from our self-sufficiency. Let's turn to God. He's sufficient 
because He is all that we need. But more than that, He is sufficient because we want to say He is all that we want. Let us learn to say, at least I have Jesus. Can we pray? Father God, I think of words from a hymn written more than 200 years ago, but no less relevant to us here. The words of John Newton that says, These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find thy all in me. Oh Lord, we want to find our all in all in you. Forgive us when we trust in our giftings. Forgive us when we try to get through the day without having you in our minds and in our thoughts. Forgive us when we're trying to locate our significance in the things of this world. Father, I want to pray for many of us here in our midst today who are really feeling this sense of unspeakable darkness and unspeakable helplessness. You know where they are and maybe you're speaking a word in a very direct way. I pray for them, those who are struggling, struggling in mental health, with chronic pain, with retrenchment, maybe even a loss of marriage, with singleness, with extreme loneliness. Father, I pray in our helplessness, may we not just wail in beds, but not come before you because you are the one who cares for us. You are all sufficient to meet our needs and our desires. And even when you say wait, we know we can rest in your all-sufficient love because you tell us that we are not forgotten. We thank you and ask us in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.